Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today, James Toback, is no ordinary filmmaker. He's no ordinary anything. Toback has strong opinions and doesn't forget things easily. Robert Downey Jr. described Toback as a revenge specialist. For a rapid-fire education in Toback's personal demons and obsessions, just review the titles of some of his films. The Gambler, The Pickup Artist, Love and Money, Black and White. James Toback makes movies on his own terms. No one hovers over him to ensure he pleases a mass audience or conforms to the needs of a studio. Recently, my friend Jimmy and I made the documentary Seduced and Abandoned, which premiered at Cannes and will air on HBO starting October 28th. This is the world film business. All these people are here doing what? Selling films they have? Or trying to find a film to grab. To the documentary up. began as a chronicle of our attempt to raise money for a film, but soon became a study of the tension between art and commerce. It's about how difficult it's become to secure financing for independent films. Just for argument's sake, the kind of movie we're thinking of couldn't go much lower than that, but what would be the number that that cast would be a feasible bet at? Four to five million. I'm too old for that, you know. It's we spoke like, to Martin yeah. Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Bernardo Bertolucci, and Roman Polanski, among others. But no matter how challenging the climate gets for independent filmmakers, I have no doubt that James Toback will find a way to fund his next project. It's clear he was put on this earth to make movies. Film, as a child, was probably the primary treat of my life, maybe watching tennis at Forest Hills, which is where the Open was played then, 
and or going to New York Giant baseball games so I could watch Whitey Lockman and Willie Mays. They'd probably be on an equal footing, but I loved going to the movies. And it was also a way of entering a world that I found dazzling and beautiful and intriguing and appealing. And of course, there was no TV. There were no computers. There was no other screen. There was that big screen in a theater. So it had a specialness that it's completely lost today. Um, I didn't know that I was going to get directly involved as a filmmaker for years later. I remained fascinated. I watched movies. Uh, when but you didn't I, study film in school. No, I d- never took a film course in my life to this day. When I got out of Harvard, I figured I'll be a What no- did you study novelist. at Harvard? English, comparative literature. And I did teach comparative literature, and I wrote a book, which was uh, called Jim, uh, a record of my rather wild life in Jim Brown's house in the Hollywood Hills. And it wasn't until 70... Two, when I started an autobiographical novel called The Gambler, that I realized halfway through it that I was conceiving it as a film. And um, eventually it fell into the hands of Mike Metavoy, who was the movie agent who ran ICM's movie division at the time, Marvin Josephson, I think it was called. And Lynn Nesbitt, my literary agent, gave it to him. He called me up. He said, this movie's going to get made. I said, great. He said, um, uh, I know who's perfect for it. And I said, who's that? And he said, Redford. And uh, I said, well, the guy's a Jew from New York. And he said, Redford's a great actor. He can play anything. Yes, of course. Uh, By then, by that time, I had already shared the script with De Niro, who was a friend of Lucy Saroyan's, and Lucy was my best friend. And um, De Niro had gone up to my class with me, learned the script, knew every move, Got and his, where was he at in his career at that he time? He was at the— Godfather 2? No. He was just doing Mean Streets. It was De Niro— The very beginning. Yeah. I, but he was the guy everyone at the actor's studio was talking about. Last Tycoon. He, everyone was saying—that was much later. But everyone oh. was saying at the actor's studio, De Niro's going to be the guy. He's uh-huh. the guy. They always sang it. So De Niro came up to class with me. He got his hair cut by Carol at Sassoon, where I get— He wore the car down blazer, and they, he had the part down. Now, Metavoy comes into play, says he's going to get it done, and says, in addition to Redford, he says, now, who do you want to have direct this movie? And I said, well, I'll direct it. He said, what have you directed? I said, nothing. He said, well, I mean, you know, like shorts or something. I said, nothing. So we can't direct the movie out of nowhere. We've got to get a director to do this movie. So he gave me a list of directors. He said, these are the 10 best directors in the world. They turned out to be his 10 director clients. Of course. And um, <laughs> he asked me to research them and see which one I liked best. And Carol Rice, who had done Isadora, which I loved, and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, I felt would be ideal. And and he called Carol, sent him the script. Carol called me up and said, I don't know this world, gambling, New York. Uh, I do know the character intrigues me. Will you come to London and work with me for a year or so? And maybe I'll be able to do it. So I thought, why not? It sounds like an interesting experience. If I don't like it, I can always come back. So Paramount gave me a check. I cashed it, got on a plane, and spent the next year seven hours a day in Carol Rice's study developing what I could only describe as the perfect mentor-protege relationship. He taught me. He was my film school. Have you got any idea how much you owe? 44 and change. 44 dimes. That's six Eldorados. $44,000, Axel. It ain't just numbers. 
So when you look back on that period in the 70s, was yeah. it exciting for you? Was oh, it, were, were tremendously you, you were, must have been. I mean, to this day, you enjoy this place oh my with a God, lot of filmmakers yeah. who are great admirers of oh. yours and your work. Uh, what was it like for you back then when those people were at their height, when Coppola was making films and you know, all of these people were – it was a, just a different world back it, then complete, than what we have now. Completely different world. It was as if um, you were – nothing was corporate. You were just on your own. You were given money and you made a movie and you made the movie you wanted to make and the way you wanted – now, I've always done that, but I've had to take much, much less money than other people are getting to do it. I can't work any other way. That's the way I learned how to work. And by the way, I learned that from Carol Rice too. The the number one rule with Carol was decide what you want and then make your wishes clear to everybody you're working with. That way of making movies as a fulfillment of an intention is something that has always stayed with me. Invent it, create it, write it, direct it, edit it, all totally self-determining. Yeah. So therefore, when you're at this point in the 70s where Carol Rice, who was a very well-regarded director back then, he makes The Gambler. Khan was a huge movie star back then. But um, were there turns you might have made? Were there choices you might have made, I'm assuming, where you could have hitched your wagon to the system? Absolutely. And you could have gotten into a movie without naming names because I don't want to you know, be petty about it, but uh, movies you might have done, offers you might have gotten, forks and roads you might have taken that you didn't take. Uh, were those opportunities there for you? Uh, there were many. Um, and they, what happened? They, uh, there was never – I wasn't – constitutionally opposed to the idea of, of someone, selling out. Well, I, no, I could never have done that. I, selling out, I could do in other areas of my life, right, not in right, that. Right, right. I am a prostitute yeah, that, that, in any area except movies. Right. You cannot get me to do it with movies. Right. I just can't do it. I'll take the money and run. I won't take the money and be a, a performing whore. Right. But what I could do was read someone else's script and say, is this something I could make my own and do a decent job with? And the answer on the various offers that I got, which I hardly ever get anymore and I used to get many of, was always the same. No. <laughs> I don't believe in it. I'm not excited by it. If I have invented a film and written it and created it, I know no one else can do it the way I can or no, I don't want it done except the way I want it done. I would never say that about somebody else's script. There has to be someone else. In fact, I'm shocked that the guy who wrote that doesn't want to do it himself. I can't imagine that he wants to turn it over to somebody else. And if you don't have that kind of faith, I don't know how you do movies. I wouldn't be able to do it. You need a heavy dose of megalomania and a heavy dose of humility. It's a combination of the two. Where does your humility come from? From How from, do you access your humility? The, the, the humility is that you say to your collaborators, you can either enable me to achieve what I know I can do with this movie or you can prevent me from achieving it. I am at your mercy. If you can give me what I know you can give me— Now, is that humility or manipulation? No, it's humility because okay. I know that if they're not all there for me and if I've made a wrong selection, I'm, gonna, I'm doomed. But the point is, is that let's go back to the 70s and talk about, just quickly, uh, name two directors who you admired what they were doing. When you were coming up, you were looking at their films. Right. Now you're in the business. Now you're making films. Yes. Who do you turned on by as filmmakers? Truffaut was number one 
by a mile. Right. And then behind him were a few, and the first two, I would say, were Visconti and Godard. Um, I would so not, all Nouvelle Vague people. Yeah, all. I would not. I, there were no American directors at that time. I I liked uh, a lot um, the very people we've used in our masterpiece, Seduced and Abandoned, <laughs> Coppola, Scorsese, Indeed. Polanski, and Bertolucci. Yes. A little bit later, became the four directors that I was most enamored of. My earlier icon when I was at Harvard watching his early movies was Truffaut, and then, as I say, Godard Visconti, in particular, The Leopard, which I regarded as an absolute masterpiece. And so so n- none of the Americans that were on the scene at the time? Uh, no. Even Kubrick? No. I, 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 I like you Kubrick. were indifferent toward Kubrick? No, not indifferent. I liked him. I just didn't put him on the same level. The only movie of Kubrick's that I absolutely thought was, was I, I liked Paths of Glory a lot. I thought Lolita was a great, great movie. I still right. do. Was television ever on the menu for you? Ever? No. Never. And even no. as film has become less of an opportunity, shall we say. Right. I mean, you might say that film is less special and film has diminished. All the words you might one might use now to describe the rather sickly condition of the movie business uh, from one standpoint, from, from our standpoint, uh, many people, of course, have, and some very big names have migrated, big directors' names. I mean, co- colleagues of yours that you admire and some of them you worked with, Levinson and so forth, have migrated to television. And you haven't. Well, then um, uh, television was still television. It's now something different. Uh, and, and cable have, is responsible. For yes, that. cable is responsible. It still is in transition. I like Breaking Bad a lot. I think it's terrific. But you've got commercials all the way through it. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a reason right there. You cannot work in a medium that interrupts your movie seven times to sell toilet paper. I'm sorry. You just can't do that. So when television was commercial interrupted television, it was not viable. Now that there are big screens at home with excellent quality and you have serious, ambitious work, much more of it being done on cable than in film, I would be open to it. I am open to it, HBO in particular, because I have a great relationship there. I like these guys and it's a viable place to work. In the 70s, though, Toback wouldn't even consider working in television. He made three films, The Gambler, Fingers, and Love and Money, which came out in 1982. It was about then that Toback observed a change in the business. The era of the studio head, an individual, deciding what gets done is beginning to crack. It's going to take quite a while. As you know, Ron Meyer, in one of the more revealing aspects of Seduced and Abandoned about the movie business, says something really startlingly revelatory. He's talking about the 70s and the 80s. He says, I could walk into Universal or any studio for that matter. And if he had the elements, he'd say, make this movie. Yeah, and they'd do it that day on the spot. Now, he said, I, as head of NBC Universal, would never do anything unless I had the team with me. That transition was beginning in the 80s. Uh, There were not that many people left. What do you attribute that to? I think it was the, it's the corporatization of movies, the corporate ownership of movies, the conglomerate ownership of movies, where there's less trust, where it's who are you exactly that right. you're 
And I noticed it as I was trying to get my next movie exposed, financed, because a fairly expensive film. How uh, expensive? Well, it's $18 million, and that would be like 65 today. Wow. Big movie shot in Paris, in Vermont, Wisconsin, New York. I had uh, Nastasia Kinski, Rudolf Nureyev, Harvey Keitel, B.B. Anderson, Pierre Clémenti. And you wrote this. Sensational cast. Yes, wrote it, produced it, directed it, and acted in it. The problem was I could not get it financed. Jeff Berg, my agent, was 0 for 10. Everyone turned it down. And what happened? Well, including David Beagleman, who was running MGM UA, he'd already turned it down. But I found myself with $2 million cash, which I won in Vegas. Uh, by the way, lest the IRS be listening, my net figure with Vegas is about a minus fifty million. So please right. don't tell me I right, made right, money right. that way, right. uh, as anyone in Vegas will vouch. But in any event, I had that two million. This is nineteen eighty one, and I thought, Christ, I'm not going to hang around here anymore, pounding on doors, chasing money. I'll just bribe Beagleman and get the movie done. So I walked into his office and with two suitcases and to make – Filled with your Vegas winnings. Yeah. And uh, let's say without filling in the details, it got a green light. And how much money did they give you to make the movie? 500000 So I was at minus a million five. In other words, I paid a million five to have it done. He gave you a budget of how much? Oh, he gave me a budget of $18 million, of which I received 500000 right. So my net for the movie was minus a million. Yeah, you and were a down half. a million and a half. Yeah, but I didn't care. I wanted to make the movie. So you go and make Exposed, and now you have – now you're making a movie, and you have a good amount of money. Right. What's the experience I like I learned that I could handle very easily a big, ambitious – 80-day shoot just as easily and skillfully as I could handle a 20-day shoot, that I had the knowledge and the cinematic skills to take a big canvas, do a kind of epic-sized movie with plots and subplots and diverse characters and do it with great quality. It was a really ambitious, interesting And what happened to the film when it came out? Uh, Sight and Sound, the BFI, British Film Institute's publication, Tom Milne referred to me as the American Buñuel, and I got some sensational reviews. Dave Kerr, who writes for The Times, now picked the best movie of the year, and there were some people who didn't like it. It was sort of a mixed response, some great, some pretty good, some negative. Quentin Tarantino today still refers to it as his favorite movie of mine. He knows the whole script by heart. He literally knows all of Harvey Keitel's language word for word. And it came out on how many screens? I think 800, which at the time was a lot. Not bad. Yeah, 800. Now, what was your writing career like during this time with you? You're making these three films, but at the same time, the guy that wrote The Gambler and also wrote Bugsy, you wrote Bugsy when? Next. Uh, no, not next. Sorry. I didn't write Bugsy next. The next thing I wrote was The Pickup Artist. Right. Which you then did with Downey. Yes. Which Warren produced. Right. Warren, I sold it to Warren for him to act in. Again, he was supposed to act in Love and Money and he was supposed to act in The Pickup Artist. Then De Niro was supposed to act in The Pickup Artist. And we were all behind De Niro doing it. Warren had already set it up with Diller at Fox. And we had a reading at De Niro's apartment. And it became very clear to Warren and me that not only was De Niro too old, the idea of a guy of that age was ridiculous. It should be a guy 20 years younger. And he asked me to make the call to De Niro to say this. And as I was about to make a call, no one knows this is true except me, but it is literally the case. He called me and said, listen, I've been thinking a lot. If you want me to do the movie, I'm going to do the movie. But, you know, I've been thinking more and more about this. 
this is not a guy 40 years old, 38 years old. You really need a guy like 21 years old in this part. I said, you know what, Warren and I have been talking about the same thing. And in one smooth conversation, we decided to go literally with a guy young enough to be the son of the age range we'd been thinking about. So now, now we had a whole new casting agenda, and I met every well-known actor in that 19 to 24-year-old range, never felt really excited about anyone, and then and Brian Hamill and David McLeod on the same day said, you know, you should look into this guy, Robert Downey. What has he done? And I looked in five minutes in a little movie called Tough Turf and a little bit more in one of those uh, um, Rodney Dangerfield movies. And uh, he was also a, an about-to-be-fired sub-regular on Saturday Night Live. In other words, he was a reject loser at that point and a drug addict and a very clear drug addict the minute you met him. And he came in. And I said to myself, this is the guy. And I knew all the pitfalls right away. I could see he was a drug addict. I could see he was a liar. I could see he was in this horrible relationship with Sarah Jessica Parker, who was a big star. She'd done Annie on Broadway, and he felt totally intimidated by her and inferior. But there was something about him. What? I felt he had a kind of jerky, mercurial, unthreatening charm. For Like a- who? Uh, well, like nobody, but like that character must Did you see have. yourself in him? No. 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 Well, a little. I felt yes, but I thought what he can do is allow – I can allow this character to cruise relentlessly and get away with it because he is who he is. And it was the personality he had. And I thought this guy can make the movie work. I felt that he did the best he could given that he was an ongoing drug addict at the time. And he was lying about it. And and to my assistant, who was fooling me, because my assistant I really trusted, and she kept assuring me that everything was okay and he was only doing it on weekends. And in reality, she was getting drugs for him. She was later murdered, by the way. It was, and he was she became his assistant afterward. It was a very crazy story. Then we did Two Girls and a Guy years later, and that's when we reached our perfection of collaboration where I feel it's the best work he could ever do. Not only that he has ever done, I don't think he can do anything beyond that. Everything he can do is on display in that movie. They are not protestations. They are outright denials. It's, it's beyond desire. It's beyond choice. It's phallic incapacity. It's an inoperative shaft. I'm telling you, if you were to put a gun to my head and say, fuck her, she's gorgeous, she needs you, it's easy, no one will know, I'd say, pull it, pull the trigger, empty the chamber into my head. Because that's now, what when, when you did Bugsy, what year was that? 91. Okay, so uh, over 20 years ago, and you're coming out of the 80s, where you, uh, Beagleman and so forth, and whatever other films you made, and you go and you're a pure writer now. You're writing for Beatty, big movie. Uh, Beatty was still making big movies back then, uh, and uh, Levinson was at the top of his game and directing still then. Was that sort of the end of your career as the writer for hire? Did you just stop right then and say, I just won't do this anymore, I can't do it anymore? Because you could have had a career there as well where you could have been just tearing it up as a writer for hire. Did you decide? I thought I was going to direct Bugsy. I wouldn't have written it otherwise. I was hired by Warren— but where you would never give your films, as you said, as you would never orphan your children, so to speak, and give them to other people to direct. Why right. did you do it in the case of— uh, I didn't. He asked me—he owned the rights to a book about Bugsy Siegel. He wanted to, wanted to play Bugsy. He said, do you want to write a Bugsy Siegel movie for me? I said, yeah. He knew that I knew that I wanted to direct the and movie. why didn't you? 
He didn't promise me. He's very as Warren as I. You and I both know. Yes, that. is very very careful with his language. He will yeah. not make a promise he doesn't keep. <laughs> so I was not naive. He was not promising it, but I felt when the time comes, my script will be so good. He'll be so excited. There won't be a problem. I'll be hired. I turned in the script. He said, "It's a great script. I love it. I'm going to do it." I said, "Well, um, should I come out today?" to L.A. And he said, what do you think of Barry Levinson? And I said, as what? And he said, a director. I said, he's okay. Did you give him the script? And he said, yeah, I did. I said, did he like it? He said, very much. And I said, did you offer it to him? He said, I did. I said, did he accept it? He said, I did. I said, well, I'll tell you what. First of all, I'm never fucking spending one day on this movie. I can't believe you did this. I'm not coming out. I'm not going to help you. He said, wait a minute. You don't understand something. The only way you'll work on this movie is if you meet Barry and you get along with him and he wants you to work on the movie. Now, I was so homicidally enraged that I could barely speak, (laughs) but I retreated emotionally and came up with a solution that enabled me to function. I thought, I will go out there. I'll get friendly with Barry And then in the spirit of Bugsy, I'll kill Barry during pre-production. Warren will know that I did it. He'll be so terrified. He'll hire me to direct the movie and everything will work. However, I immediately liked Barry when I met him. We got along extremely well. And it turned out that I thought this is going to be a great three-person collaboration. So it was. You wouldn't be related to Bugsy Siegel, would you? Bugsy? What do you mean Bugsy? I beg your pardon. A bug is nothing. A bug does not exist. The word has no meaning. It's only used out of ignorance or malice. Do you know what a bug is? A bug is a colloquialism. It has no basis in reality. Insects include a wide variety of living creatures. They fly, they crawl, they do many things. None of them can be called a bug. Are you following me? Because if you aren't... In a minute, James Toback talks about the unlikely man who he says knows him as well as his wife, Mike Tyson. I'm Alec Baldwin. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest, writer-director James Toback, first worked with boxing heavyweight champion Mike Tyson when he cast Tyson to play himself in his fictional film Black and White about New York's hip-hop scene. Nine years later, James Toback made Tyson, a documentary film about the former boxer. He approached Tyson at a time when the fallen icon had little to lose. Toback was also in need of salvation. My mother had died, and I felt I have to get on and do a movie now because if I don't, I'm going to go crazy. And Tyson had just gotten arrested again for drugs in Arizona, and they sort of smuggled him into L.A. in rehab. And I thought he's going to be like Downey. It's always best to get addicts and fuck-ups right after they've crashed because – well, because the, the, all, the, all the veneer is gone. Anything fake is right. gone. You get a sense of the truth of the person. Right. And uh, it's, They're raw. Yeah. You, you want to get them when they are truthful. So I called him and I said, do you think it would be good for you? I don't – forget me. If I could get you out for a week and shoot all day, every day, he said, it would save me. I would love it. It would save my life. So we talked to the rehab people. They said they'll let him out, supervised every day, 10 hours a day. I was no way going to be running around trying to get money for that because it would have wasted time and I felt – Whatever money I have has to go into this. So I had $2 million free, and I felt I can do it for $2 million. So I financed the movie myself. We made it right away, and then it took a year to edit because I had no idea what the movie was going to be. We shot for about 50 hours, and then I spent a year putting the movie together. I deal with a huge inferiority complex. As a little boy, I was fat, and everybody fat, picked on everybody me. Picked on so now I never back down from a fight. So when people, a, fight, a, pe- a person could say some infantile thing like, you're stupid, or you got your ass kicked in a fight, and I will strike them. I'm not you know, when you see Tyson from a fight, on film, there's an innocence to him. Did you find that when you were around him? Because in your film, he goes to another level of vulnerability when he breaks down and realizes what a mess he made of his life. I believe I have had a relationship. Who do you think he is? Well, I know who he is because I feel I know him better than anyone on earth knows him. 
And I feel he's been more open and honest with me than he has with anyone else. And I would have to say on a certain level, I have been so open and honest with him that only a handful of people, including Beatty, Harvey Keitel, and you, and my wife and son, know me as well as anyone can know me. And I would say with Tyson, it's even more extreme because the areas where he and I have connected over the years are so far out there that some of the things we've said to each other, I think we could only say because the other person is in a certain way on the same wavelength. That intimacy, and that's what it is, that intimacy has resulted in his ability to show those moments, to show what he, who he is in both black and white and certainly in Tyson. I watched the Spike Lee one-man show Tyson movie being shot, and it's going to be on HBO, and it's hilarious and very well done, and Mike is a spectacularly energetic performer. But it's a different thing. If that's a kind of entertainment. It's Mike entertaining, and he is a really good entertainer now. I, you know, my my penchant is to get people to be themselves, is to get people to drop the front that ultimately I find deters me and distracts me from any real interest in that and to person. Risk, and to risk doing so. Absolutely. Because what's thrilling is the risk that's there. Yeah. I start to lose interest in a person as I see him or her putting up the protective facade that most people put up all the time. If you know someone well enough to call them on it, they'll either go with that or they won't. Do you have any idea why you succeeded in getting Tyson to drop that facade, even momentarily? Be, be, a, because of where he knew was he in his life to, at that Because you knew he wanted he to. He wanted to. Tyson is a fascinating figure. Tyson, as a personality, is a complicated, fascinating guy. There are great champions who are unbelievably boring as human beings, as you know. Some of the greatest athletes ever are some of the most pitifully dull people who ever lived. Tyson happens to have been a great champion who is also a tragically fascinating, complex figure. And Tyson is also a figure uh, like yourself, certainly from your own admission, who's a bit of a hedonist. I don't think that there's enough space in the digital universe to put down on, uh, to refresh to record uh, all, of your, uh, all of your adventures, shall we say. Well, you're only here for a split second, and then it's over. Right, but you, but you are someone who has uh, lived a particular life, going back to the days with Jim Brown, when you were living with Jim Brown. What does that tell us about you? You're a person who what? Uh, who is aware he's going to die which happened after I flipped out on LSD when I was 19 years old and a sophomore at Harvard. I'd been doing nonstop drug consumption, somehow managing to be a straight-A student, a successful athlete, editor of the literary magazine, all this stuff running around with all these beautiful girls. But I was a drug addict. There was no other way of putting it. So I was what happened back then? Something broke and you got stuck in a certain stage? Never not high. It was hedonism. I liked right. the sensation of being high. However, I realized that I was no longer able to get high without taking two or even three times the amount of drugs that I used to right. need. So you want to get and, off drugs. And it was, right. And I decided the way to get off drugs was to blow my mind out. So I researched LSD and wanted to take the largest dose ever on record, which mm -hmm. I did. What happened was <laughs> nine hours into what was a spectacularly enjoyable, transcendent experience, static experience, I 
snapped and went insane. And I knew it right away. And I said, uh-oh. And for the next eight days, yeah. I was walking around with a loaded 22-millimeter yeah. You thought you pistol. were Aldous Huxley, and now you're just a turnip. I'm nothing. Zero. <laughs> so what I did was I decided I would kill myself. And every time I was about to squeeze the trigger, I was walking around Cambridge with a loaded 22 I thought, what happens if I feel exactly the way I'm feeling after I'm dead. And that's what prevented me from committing suicide. I called my mother finally after eight days and said, I'm going to have to kill myself and explained everything. She said, don't do anything. Let me see what I can do. And my mother, who was the the greatest human being I've ever known in my life, called me back 20 minutes later and said, LSD was synthesized in Switzerland in 1938 by two men at Sanders Laboratory, one of them who died recently at the age of 106, Hoffman, the other is Max Rinkel. He's 10 miles away in Newton, Massachusetts. He's the head of Massachusetts Biochemical Psychiatry Association. He's at Mass General. Here's his phone number. I'm flying up from New York. Three hours later, I'm in his house with my mother and father, and he is, after talking to me and diagnosing me, presenting me with a piece of paper, which I've dramatized in Harvard Man. Harvard Man has this exactly as it happened, a movie I did in 2002. It says, in case I should die as the result of the medication administered to me by Dr. Max Rinkle of Newton, Massachusetts, I hereby absolve Dr. Rinkle of all responsibility in my death. I said, what are the chances I'm going to die? He said, very good. I said, good that I'm going to live or that I'm going to die? That you're going to die, like 50-50? He said, more like 10 to 1. I said, well, why should I say yes? He said, do you want to feel like this for the rest of your life? I said, I can't stand to feel like this for another two seconds. He said, sign it and roll up your sleeve. I signed it. I rolled up my sleeve. He gave me a seven-minute intravenous injection. In the halfway point, I passed out. 27 hours later, I woke up on his sofa, and I was a new person. And the difference was I was no longer afraid of death. And everything else in my life was different because I have been ready to die from that day forward. And but that did is, you subsequently replace that addiction with other addictions about food and yeah, women and yeah, gambling? Yeah, but, but those were different. But, but, but they're not different. I mean, that, that's a whole other convert. This is a whole other. Give me a sentence or two about what gambling was to you, get, get, which has caused you a lot of problems. It's yes, brought you a yes, lot of trouble. Yes, yes. Let me say what is different. The addictions that are not to a physical substance enable you to continue to function in society as if you do not have that addiction. An alcohol or a drug addiction advertises to everybody all the time that you're an addict. That's a big difference. Well, well, yes, in terms of consciousness in one sense, meaning one is far more clear and one is far more impactful. You can't hide it. Well, no, no. Well, well, you, yeah, yeah. And you can't undo it until just by mere concentration, you are disabled by the substance. However, drug time and alcohol time is not just the time you're inebriated with the substance. It's arguably the time you thought about it, the time it took you to go score it, right. the time it took you to recover from it when you were right. hungover, the time it took you to earn the money to pay for it, all right. that stuff that could have, is energy. That's and true. monetization is energy to go towards something else. The same is true of anything else you've done. Right. All the time you have been enslaved, yes. you or anyone else, yes. to your sexuality, to, your, to, to food, right. to gambling, that's stuff that's taken away from the Absolutely. quality of your life. Now, but I, but I want to get to one thing, which is um, what did gambling do for you? Gambling enabled me to 
It we she, talked about this once. I said gambling. People gamble, and I had my answer I gave you. And you said people gamble and risk all that losing because what? They think what? The, the, it enables them to feel that they are immortal because when you win, you think – I actually defeated death. Losing is death. It's a metaphor. Right, it's a metaphor you are engaged death. in this ongoing struggle to stay alive. Right. And my answer to you was that gambling provided you with the opportunity to prove that God loved you. That's right. Which is more spiritual. That's that right. God exists yes. and that God loves you. So if I won, God loves me yes, today. Yes, right. And the image in the gambler that says that is the image at Caesar's palace with the arc of lights over Jimmy Khan's head as he says to the dealers uh, asking for a hit on an 18 which no one in his right mind would do give me the three and the dealer gives him a three and somebody <laughs> says you're lucky and he says no but I'm blessed <laughs> and that's that, that's, all, that's the illustration of that Jimmy Toback has won and lost plenty through gambling. He's the first to admit his obsessions have strained his relationships, yet he's been married for 30 years. And uh, we've been through a lot. Uh, the main thing has been that there is a, always has been a total understanding, for better or for worse, and it's been both, of the dimensions of my personality and my life and to be accepted and loved for who you are, even if certain things anger you or upset you, is something you can ask of nobody. If you get it, it's a gift. You might expect it from a parent, and I expected it from mine, and I got it from mine, mm -hmm. but you certainly can't expect it from anybody else. And even many parents right. don't do sure. it. They say, get the hell out of here. Sure. You know, I don't care there if you're limits. my son. Yeah, and you just crossed yours, you right. know. So I I had it from my parents, but I really never, I certainly didn't expect it. And I wouldn't with a straight face have said it, but I've just been given it. And my son, who's now 13, I feel that in relation to him. I mean, he would, even if he shot me, I would still love him as I was dying. You sure. know, there is that, I understand that emotion. I've never understood it before. There is nothing he could do that would make me say, get out, I right. disown and you. And he certainly tries. Yes, he does. He certainly, he he certainly does. pushes he, those boundaries. He has, and I said to him, the problem is this, you will never be as lucky as I have been. I dodged all these bullets, not through skill, but through luck. I should have been dead at 15, at 18, at 19, and you will not be that lucky. You must be more careful. And it's like spitting in the wind yeah. against the wind. There's no way it registers any more than what my father said registered to me. Now, after you did Tyson, I want to finish with this. After you did Tyson, had you contemplated that you wanted to get back into the documentary film business? No, I thought I never want to do a documentary again. It's too much work and too long and, and too And so draining. essentially we did not make a documentary. No, we didn't. But there are so many things. The, the thing about seduced and abandoned, which is the, 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 the net result, is that uh, people need only watch the movie. We don't have to talk about the movie now, but when you, when you see the finished product, uh, what were you proudest of when you saw that film? What, what appealed to you? First of all, I just find it immensely entertaining and enjoyable and visually beautiful and musically beautiful. Mm -hmm. So as an aesthetic act, as a work of art, cinematic art, I think it's absolutely elegant and beautiful. The other thing is precisely what I said before, that it resembles no other movie ever made. I defy anyone to say it's like. The minute you give me a movie it's like, I will tell you why that's a bogus analogy. Festival, as the word suggests, is to have fun. 
So there were and I went there and I had a great time. You'd be at the Carlton Terrace. You'd be meeting all these different people, all kinds of, you know, you know what it's like. And all these interviews, talk, talk, talk to everybody, me, 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 etc. <laughs> uh, that was the peak of my megalomania. If I see the movie again or a piece of the movie, I can see myself in that kind of uh, ocean of pleasure of one year shooting. In the time I've known you, you, uh, you, you certainly are the classic example of someone who, in this business, who's never happier than when you're making a film. You know, it's the highest I can get. Sure, and, 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 and is it safe to say that you're enormously frustrated because you don't get to do as much of it as you'd like to Absolutely. do? Absolutely. And this is responsible, I think, for your gambling issues and your emotional issues. Eating. And food issues. Eating. Food is the simplest sure, sure, way. Sure. Stuff some food in your mouth uh, instead. Sure. Me to medicate yourself. It's and, and, two seconds. Right. And, 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 Grab it and eat it. And, and it's legal. Yes, that's right. You don't have to go to a dealer to get that's it. That's right. You the just, dealers are just, everywhere. Just the, deal, the dealers have golden arches over Pick there. it up, open your mouth, and right. put it in. Yeah. And, 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 but for you, do you think that you, you could have an easier time of it? You could have a more uh, comfortable experience. You could have a more uh, uh, healthy experience, knowing that this is, a, is, is a probably a more healthful path for you to get on, maybe, because of these other demons. Do you think that television is something that's uh, appealing for you in the near future now? Uh, Have you it, changed your tune about television? Only, only if it's cable, only if it's uh, the, with people like the people at HBO whom I personally like. I'm not interested in whether it's television or movies for that matter in working for or with people who don't share my opinion of myself. And it's one of the reasons that I have worked as infrequently as I have because you can't force people to do that. They either do or they don't. And I expect these people to say, I think you're great and here's the money to prove it. Now do what you want to do. I have no say in this. You make the movie you want to make. I'm investing in your idea of you and what you want to do with the people you choose and you like. Those are very strict parameters. Most people making big, big budget movies would be shot down in two seconds if they talked that way. You can't go into a studio and talk that way. I can't work any other way. This is, it's not movies per se I want to do. It's movies that I want to do my own way that I want to do. I don't want to make. And that's frustrating. 99% of the movies that are made. No. I can happily go in and enjoy for two hours something that, if you put a gun to my head, I wouldn't want to spend a month making, let alone right. a year. Right. But two hours, yeah, that was right. fun, particularly right. goofball comedies right. that I love that are silly and stupid. I go with my son. We laugh like crazy. I can't I, – to spend a year doing – nine months doing one, but for two hours, great. But if I'm going to spend a year doing something and getting very little money for it, it's got to be something where I can say with a straight face, this is why I want to be alive. When I sat in the editing room with Aaron Yanis for 10 months, editing and re-editing and re-re-editing and trying every imaginable combination of editorial invention, seduced and abandoned, I loved all of it. That experience to me is what living is about. I, I don't consider it a job. I consider it oxygen and livelihood. That's why if, if I die today and the last thought is it's okay because probably because partly because it just happened but also because it's valid one of my immediate thoughts would be it's okay to die because we finished seduced and abandoned 
Seduced and Abandoned premieres on HBO on October 28th. Don't die. Please don't die. I'm, he, I'm not... We have other things to do. I'm you not said planning I can die. No, to, no, don't you die. know, you yeah. know that I'm a fatalist, so... Yeah. You're, not, you're not going to die yet. I'm, I'm okay. gonna, we, all right. We, well, we, you, have to, we have to make one more movie. If, if, you, if you have a direct route to fate, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm going to work on that. Okay. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.